All right, it is four o'clock, so we're gonna go ahead and get started. Thank you for all who are joining us today for this very exciting and timely webinar on blockchain and election security. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our moderator for this webinar, um, Kenneth Garofalo. He is the CEO of Block Relations. Uh, Ken, I'll let you go ahead and take it from here. Thank you so much, Kirsten. And to begin, I just wanted to thank ATARC, the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center, uh, for having us in this arena here today, allowing us to host this panel talk with some great insights from these industry experts. So thank you, Kirsten, and thank you to Tom as well. So as you guys know, it's been two full days since the election, and still we do not have a decided president. So this has by far been one of the most unique elections in history. And I'm really glad that we have all these panelists here today to discuss. So the topic for today will be the post-election analysis, reflection, discussion, and discovery with these industry experts specializing in electronic voting, blockchain development, and regulations. We're going to gain valuable insights from these panelists in regards to elections and the security surrounding the process. So to begin, I'm just going to briefly introduce the panelists one by one. And if you guys can just give me a little bit about your background and current projects that you're working on, uh, just to, to introduce yourselves to the audience. So first we can start with Cecil John, CJ, the author of the Social Currency and CEO of virtualdeveloper.com. How are you doing today, CJ? Doing very good. Thanks so much for having me. So as, um, you know, as, as Ken said, I'm the CEO of virtualdeveloper.com. We're a Microsoft managed company. And in terms of blockchain, I built a blockchain platform, which I promoted as the world's first blockchain enabled digital workplace caught Microsoft's attention, they gave me a call and they invited me to my company to be what is called a managed company status. I'm also the author of The Social Currency, which is kind of a blend between money and morality. Excellent, thank you so much, CJ. And next we have Jake Braun, who's the executive director at the University of Chicago's Cyber Policy Initiative and the CEO of Cambridge Global Advisors. How are you doing today, Jake? I'm good, how are you? Doing well, if you want to give us a little bit about your background and any projects you're currently working on. Sure. Um, so uh, as executive director of the Cyber Policy Initiative at University of Chicago, um, we set up a program uh, this cycle uh, to give a pro bono um, cybersecurity support to state and local um, election offices to help enhance their uh, in-house security. And um, have uh, collected a bunch of um, data via Twitter and other um, areas to um, produce reports on different cyber attacks and other things that have happened uh, um, this cycle. Um, and uh, um, oh, and, and I guess I'll, I'll shamelessly plug my book too, which is uh, Democracy in Danger. It came out uh, last year. Yes. Thank you, Jake. And yes, this is definitely the time. Go ahead and plug away. Anything you guys want to promote here. Um, so thank you, Jake. And next up, we have Nimit Sani, who is an entrepreneur and co-founder of Votes, a very important electronic voting application that utilizes the blockchain. So how are you doing today, Nimit? Hi, Kenneth. Good, thanks. Thank you for having me here. Uh, I will quickly <coughs> share a few screen slides. Might be easier to get the message. So as many of you know, Votes is... Uh, is the youngest uh, elections company in the country. We are very mobility focused. And one of the pillars of our solution is the 
the way we use the blockchain technology. So in terms of uh, projects we've been involved in since uh, 2018, we've been doing a whole bunch of government pilots. These are small elections with a controlled group of uh, voters, primarily from the military citizens living overseas, and more recently, voters with disabilities as well. And so far, 30 counties in five states have successfully piloted the solution. Um, They're spread across the country. So just a small example. In addition, we've also been running elections for both the major political parties, uh, especially this year, their conventions, uh, internal voting as well. So across the board, on both sides of the spectrum as well. And with respect to the current election, we were very honored and um, very humbled to be the first smartphone app-based uh, election system to ever be used in the US federal elections. And two states, a uh, few counties in two states piloted the solution and both of them had uh, record turnout. So excited to share more about that as, uh, as the canvas progresses and we're able to publicly release the information. But thank you for having us here. Thank you very much, Nimit, for those insights and exciting to hear uh, that your company was one of the first to introduce uh, smartphone voting this year for this election. So we'll get more into that later. Uh, so next up, we have Tom McDonough, who's the Neighborhood Business Manager at City of Boston Mayor's Office of Economic Development. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm doing well, Ken. How are you? Doing excellent and happy to have you here. Uh, you're going to give us quite the perspective from the, the government side of things, right? From the, the local office side of things. And yeah. we we'll definitely look forward to that. Yeah. And, and um, my background is in government and politics. And, and for uh, someone who is in government and politics, this is Super Bowl day. So, uh, so you know, it's been uh, fantastic. I think, from a political perspective, just to watch all this, and um, it's the first time in in a uh, in a while, I think, that um, I haven't been directly uh, involved in one of these uh, one of these presidential campaigns. Um, I did. I have have been a, a veteran of political campaigns throughout the local, state, and federal and international uh, races over the years. And uh, the difference between this election and all those other elections was that we have such a divisive uh, atmosphere now. And, uh, and it's due to a lot of different things and, and COVID being one of them. And, uh, that's been, it's been a huge challenge uh, for, for every facet of our society. And, and you're, you were asking me to discuss mail-in voting. And I think mail-in voting this year uh, has been in, uh, just, it's been one of the things that we've needed to look at and needed to implement um, on a more wide scale, uh, just a, a wide scale, uh, give me the word, Ken. 
A wide-scale initiative, yeah. We definitely need to look more into the successes, the problems that occurred with mail-in voting. And we will get into that question in a little bit here, but it's you, break, you bring up a great point there where this election is like none other that came before because of the divisiveness of the candidates, of the political parties, and of the situation with COVID-19. So truly a unique scenario, and we're happy to have you here with us, Tom. Thanks. So this next year, up. This year's process, by the way, I think has been pretty successful. Oh, excellent. And I'd, I'd like to hear more specifically why you believe it to be successful. Uh, we will get to those questions in just a bit here. Uh, so next up, we have Bill Rockwood, who is Deputy Legislative Director for Congressman Darren Soto out of Florida 09 at U.S. House of Representatives. How are you doing today, Bill? Doing great. Well, uh, first, Kenneth, thank you for having me. Um, Block One, you all do great work and uh, looking forward to seeing the, the great work product you put out, put out and also ATARC, uh, who does a fantastic job. Um, emerging tech and, and politics, it's, it's definitely a slow burn. Um, there's a huge educational front, but I'll save that, those remarks. Um, as mentioned, I'm the de Deputy Legislative Director for Congressman Darren Soto. Um, he is co-chair of the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. And I'll add at this point that all views are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of my boss or the House of Representatives. And I'll, I'll leave the political commentary to other folks. I'm, I'm here trying to be the insider of, of what I've seen in, in uh, blockchain and the political and policy dynamic. Um, the Blockchain Caucus plays a huge part on the educational front, that that's largely what the caucus's goal is. Um, we stand at 25 bipartisan members. We do a lot of one-on-one, 101s. We're trying to get the conversation beyond crypto and, and highlight the, the actual benefits and the use cases blockchain can have. That's why my boss is big on it and why myself, um, I handle a bucket of issues and actually have more of a financial background. But I, I see uh, blockchain as a way to, to make the world a better place. It sounds cheesy, but I, I wholeheartedly wholeheartedly believe it and some of the things we're doing within our office um, we passed the two uh, bills out of the house first two blockchain bills out of the house of representatives about a month ago uh, we hope to get those introduced in the senate um, long term our goals are to create some sort of federal coordination of blockchain efforts within the federal government and all this tease um, I, I heard one of my pa panelists mentioned um, use cases and pilot programs that's sort of our specialty as an office we've gotten 20 items in the past two budgets uh, highlighting different blockchain pilots and how a different government agency can use blockchain so hopefully i can be a translator between the great uh, technologists that we have here today and the the uh, policy who are catching up but are still a little bit behind on these these issues Awesome. And thank you very much for that, Bill. Glad to have you here. And last, we have the renowned Frank Norgat, the founder of Electus.io, which is an electronic voting platform that utilizes the public blockchain of Tezos. How are you doing today, Frank? Doing very good. And I'd like to second what Bill was, uh, was saying. So, you know, thanks to uh, Atark, thanks to Block One. Uh, really looking forward to, uh, I guess, a very timely debate on, you know, hopefully a uh, discussion and hopefully a useful one. Uh, uh, you mentioned me as the founder. I'm actually the co-founder of, uh, of Electis, and I'd like to salute uh, my co-founder, uh, Gilles Mantre, who's, uh, who's here tonight. Uh, we, both of us has actually, have actually a very different background, like to, to keep it short. So I, I co-founded uh, 
a nonprofit in the US called Startup Weekend. We we merged later with uh, the Startup America Initiative, and we we did our best uh, during ten years to you know inspire uh, I guess like more than forty thousand entrepreneurs in more than one hundred and sixty countries. Um, so I come more from from the startup world, but one thing led to another. I met uh, Gilles, Tom. He, he has more of a profile like yours because he's he spent like more than ten years in politics and government. Uh, he was a special advisor to uh, to President Sarkozy, and I I kind of like the idea of you know these worlds co- meeting each other and that you know this this discussion are happening to to maximize innovation and serendipity. And so we we co-founded together Electis, um, the website uh, publicityselectis.io. We um, we we aim to to learn by doing you know what could what could the future of democracy look like and uh, and so we tried to bring everybody around the table so far we've got um, one project that's uh, vote for university we're sponsored by uh, the the Tezos foundation we have recruited so far more than 30 university on track to be to to get more than 50 around the world uh, and we want to get kind of a mix of students researchers professors um, ngos uh, government and non-government uh, organizations uh, to to experiment, just to to run as many experiments as possible, to try as many things as possible in a kind of a space safe environment, so you don't have to test that at you know national election, um, and and that's it. And we're also developing our own solution. It's open source, it's called Electis, and we're 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 welcoming any uh, the criteria. I guess we we have is we we're looking for solutions that are open source, uh, free, uh, and of course we're we're big cheerleader of decentralization and also maybe we'll talk about it like semi-decentralization as a as a win in, the, in between oh and my background is in computer sciences because my yes and i'm calling from ukraine so i apologize it's a little dark out there it's uh, close to uh, to midnight but again really honored to be here and cannot wait to start this discussion Excellent. And thank you very much to all of these esteemed panelists. And I hope that the collaboration and networking is not just confined to this panel talk, but continues afterwards too. So a lot of opportunity here. I do want to remind quickly the audience that we will be doing a Q&A at the end of our panel talk. So if you guys have questions, feel free to put those in the chat now, and then we'll hit those uh, as we wrap up our predetermined questions here. So again, I wanted to thank ATARC. If you guys need more information on ATARC, it can be found on atarc.org. And again, my company is Block Relations. Any more information on my company can be found on blockrelations.com. All right, guys, let's get into the exciting part of today's panel talk. These are the questions that we're going to get some insights uh, from the panelists. So what I'll do first is I'll read the question, and then I will call on the panelists that I'd like some feedback from in regards to the specific question. If anyone has any uh, commentary they want to add, feel free to interject. So first question, we know there are many downfalls, but what are the current downfalls fraud risks in areas of optimization opportunity within the current voting system. And CJ, if we could please have you uh, take the stage here first. Absolutely. Um, so I'll give a little you know, scenario. So um, I did a mail-in ballot this year, um, but I misplaced it. So I had to go through the process of applying it you know, for it again online, never actually received it. So I went in person to vote. Um, I, wanted to, I wasn't sure whether I actually mailed it out or not. So I went online, tried to find if I could track to see whether um, it had been received. I mean, I found it eventually, but that's kind of an arduous process. So I think that whole workflow of voting, um, but, you know, uh, um, being able to just vote from where you are from, where, uh, where you are with a secure hardware biometrically, you know, mapped to your, you know, um, to your credentials, you're going to get the provenance that the blockchain will, um, will, will provide, the proof of record, but also the proof of, um, of flow as well. So you can follow up and see that the, you know, that you voted and the vote wasn't tampered with. 
So that's one of the areas of optimization, which is very, very close to my heart. Excellent. Thank you for that. And Jake, could we get your commentary on this as well? Any kind of uh, insights into downfalls, fraud risks, and areas of optimization opportunity with the current voting system? Sure. Um, so I, I think that uh, the, the kind of most vulnerable points um, of the infrastructure, I think, are, are the kind of two bookends of the infrastructure. So one being the voter registration database that contains all the names and, and addresses and everything. Um, and then uh, secondly, the, uh, the websites that display the election results, um, tell people where to vote, when to vote, all that type of stuff. Um, you know, the websites are vulnerable in virtue of the fact that they're websites and, you know, um, it's nearly impossible to, to stop um, uh, someone from hacking the website, um, at least a determined actor like a nation state. Um, and, you know, so much havoc can be done with the registration databases, um, you know, by deleting voters or changing around addresses or, you know, any number of things uh, that the voter registration databases um, you know, do provide uh, a very lucrative target for the attackers. Um, and, you know, un unfortunately, both of these um, uh, aspects of the uh, voting infrastructure um, are not that hard to get at. Um, and we know that at least in the case of Russia in 2016, um, they actually did a hack into the voter registration databases. Uh, we don't know what they did besides scan them. Um, but uh, the way they got in was by hacking uh, the websites of the election officials um, and using a very simple SQL injection attack. Um, and it turns out like DHS, I think just reported, uh, maybe it was Monday or, or maybe it was Friday, um, that in fact, this had happened again. They said Iran did the same thing and, and another actor, um, but they didn't specify who it was. It, we presume it's Russia, but we don't know because um, uh, DHS hasn't said, hasn't said who it was. And so now we know that in the last two presidential elections, in fact, um, both the database and the websites have been attacked. Um, and again, using this very simple um, SQL injection attack that honestly at, at DEF CON, so I'm, I'm the co-founder of the voting machine um, hacking village at DEF CON. And, uh, you know, we, we had 10-year-old um, kids, 11-year-old kids, um, who were able to execute um, a SQL injection attack on, on a fake uh, Secretary of State website that we made up um, with, I think, a half an hour of training. Um, so certainly, nation state hackers can, can and have executed these same types of, uh, of attacks. Now, one thing that I think is, is interesting um, in terms of defense, and one thing that we actually helped an election official with, I can't say where because of um, NDAs and so on, um, but we did have an election official um, implement a blockchain instance on his voter registration database uh, to better secure it um, leading up to the election. And so we, we think that's promising. Um, secondly, I think that we, we've got a real problem in the fact that the only people who seem to really get to see the, the um, election software that's used that kind of knits together the the results that are published on the websites, the data that's in the voter reg database, um, the, the, the machines that are programmed and so on, um, is the vendors and the bad guys. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a huge advocate for open source voting software, of which I know there's many projects 
uh, or many groups out there like kind of racing to be the first ones to build um, a, a usable one. But what we don't have is the good guys looking at um, this ele the election software that's out there and trying to find holes and vulnerabilities so that they can be fixed. And, you know, I'd really like to see um, if we could get a, a bill passed, um, uh, federal R&D dollars, uh, maybe out of DHS S&T or NSF or DARPA or whoever, um, or maybe all three, uh, to support the development of uh, um, open source um, voting software, because um, that, that could really go a long way to, to solving a, a lot of the problems that I, or at least, you know, um, managing better the problems that I, that I outlined there. Yeah, that's some really valuable insights. And I think you are, you know, precisely the right panelists to discuss these uh, potential fraud risks since you've already identified a few of them. Um, so thank you for that. And Nimit, I was wondering if you could also weigh in on this topic. Sure. Yeah, in addition to what uh, Jake outlined, I think another aspect besides uh, security, it gets frequently overlooked is the accessibility aspect of it. There are a lot of voters around the country who can't hand mark a paper ballot. And so for them, uh, it's hard to have an accessible interface to voting. And I think we need to look at that as well. That's one area where the current systems um, don't do a adequate job and there are millions of voters like that who are impacted and frequently overlooked. So I would, I would point that out as one. The other um, aspect, which I think is a, is a significant issue, is a lack of standardization. And we do have a very decentralized approach of running elections in the US, unlike most of the countries. So there are close to 4,000 plus jurisdictions around the country and each of them pretty much in the most, most cases does elections their own way. We don't even have a common standard of designing ballots. And these are paper ballots. And so I think we need standardization. We need standardization of you know, data formats of how uh, voter registration systems interact with the different components of the system. And so um, a lack of standards has uh, has led to a, a lot of problems which, which could be solved as well. So I'll point out those two things. Excellent. And I know, Frank, you look like you wanted to uh, have some input on this topic. Do you want to weigh in? I think we, we can talk more maybe, uh, maybe later on, but yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I do believe actually DARPA did, uh, did finance, like uh, if, I'm, if I'm correct, I, I believe that was election guard. I think they put some, some money into that. And, uh, but, but yeah, definitely, well, that's, that's going to be a big topic, I think, for today. Uh, yeah. The standardization, this working, I mean, like, we're, we're spending, I don't know how much we spent on, on that election. Uh, on the organizing the election, I heard the 1.2 billion, I think, just on organizing it. I mean, it seems, it seems interesting. It's, I don't know how much of that is allocated towards building a better system, but I'm pretty much sure it's zero. Um, so yeah, and, definitely, definitely something to be done there. And I can actually add to that, uh, I don't know the, the figures that were passed last year, but in this, this past house budget, an additional $450 million were allocated for election security. I don't, unfortunately the bill didn't make it over the, the finish line. Um, it passed the house, but um, there is an appetite for funding in, in these R and D measures, but hopefully not too little too late. 
Exactly. And in the interest of time, guys, let's just move to the next question here. Uh, so we'll start off with Bill on this. So I want you guys to discuss the mail-in voting that we saw happen this year and analyze the success of this year's process. Uh, we all know that there was a lot more mail-in voting due to the COVID-19 situation. So uh, Bill, if you'd li like to start with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to do the, the classic political move and, and reframe the question and answer the thing I want to want to answer and just say, uh, we got we to gotta think of the positives first, that the highest vote, voter turnout, highest mail-in ballots um, ever in history. And there is a study that if you vote um, mail-in, you are statistically much, much more likely in the future to do it again. So I think that is a positive track. And we have to also acknowledge that the pandemic fundamentally changed things. Um, and, but all that said, we're here three days later, probably with all some degree of anxiety. Um, so I highlight the positives just to say we, we have some problems. Um, and I'll just point to the confidence. You know, I think people are working hard and, you know, doing the right thing at the state and local level. But when you have a patchwork of, of regimes that, you know, Nevada, for instance, is going to be processing ballots for another uh, week or so. Um, and I, I think that just leaves us all wanting something different. Um, and and I'll, I'll frame that in the positive because unfortunately politics and policymaking is a reactive process. Very, very few times are they in front of problems. So I think this does provide a perfect uh, starting point for this conversation and why a conversation like this is a problem because everyone's feeling that tension right now. And um, I really think uh, the blockchain and, and some other solutions, they're not, they're not solutions in search of a problem. We, we have, you know, this framework that's set up in the constitutional days and we don't work through the Pony Express anymore. You know, this isn't your uh, Kennedy versus Nixon election. So we need to react accordingly and, and look to evolve into the future. Couldn't agree more. And Tom, when you were introducing yourself, you said that you believe the mail-in voting was a huge success this year. So I want to find out why. Oh, I think you're just on uh, mute there, Tom. I am. Um, I, I believe it was a huge success only because I think it guarantees that all votes will be counted. And, and um, there has been some problem in the past years with getting all the votes counted. And I think mail-in voting gives people the opportunity to get their vote in regardless of whatever else is going on. I mean, this year it's COVID, next year it will be something else. But, uh, but it, it guarantees them the ability to get, get in their vote un, unhindered by, by anything but the postal service. So. Exactly. That's a nice caveat. Anything but the Postal Service, right? Un uninhibited. So, uh, Frank, I'd actually like to hear uh, your thoughts on this subject as well. So, I'm, uh, I'm going to have to disagree with you, Tom, from personal experience, which is like, well, I was very proud to, to vote for a first time at this election and being overseas. I um, had the chance to, to experience, you know, first time the process. And I must say it's very confusing. Well, I've, I guess I'm a special case because before I used to be in Puerto Rico, which is another state so I had to first of all figure out you know which state but which ended up being New York um, and then I had to figure out that each state had different rules 
uh, you know, some send you the, the ballot, some send you an invite to get a ballot. Uh, the way it works for New York is you have to, 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 to ask for your absentee ballot, which I did by, you know, first printing a paper and sending it, then following, you know, following it on FedEx, then waiting, I don't know, maybe three weeks, two weeks, then I got an email. And the email said like, congratulations, Frank, but they misspelled my name. And after that, they said, here's the link, click here, put your email and your, you know, your, your information, like Kings County and all these things, and then print your ballot. I was like, that's great. I'm just going to do that. And I tried every combination of name, first name, second name, mix them all. I've never been able to get the ballot. I tried to send an email to, uh, to the Kings County Board of Election. I never got a response until I get a response later that says, hey, sorry, the, the window's over. So, so personally, I was like, I wished I could have voted for my phone, like, so by Nimit, like, I, I would have loved to, <laughs> to use votes or, or something similar. And I, I do believe, I do believe you're right. It's a great success that 100 million people, I think, this year used uh, the, the, the mailing ballot. Um, but I, I'm also, there, in a way, I, I mean, it looks like there's going to be a lot of debates about should we trust this election or not? And actually, I'm very excited by a very deep audit, uh, which I'm sure is going to happen. And so we'll know, we're, we're going to learn so much and we'll see actually, you know, how solid the system is. So I agree it's a little sad and a little messy right now, but I guess the, the good side of it is we're, we're stress testing this thing like never. Um, and at, at the end of the day, like I, I, I do believe democracy is, it's not, a, it's like, you know, in economy, you've got, you've got these behavioral economics I kind of like to think of behavioral democracy. You know, it's not because you have the best system in the world uh, that it means people believe in it. And so, super, uh, I, I join you in thinking that actually it's a good thing that this thing is being stress tested to, to the max for you know the next couple of weeks. Can yeah, I just I mean, interject, interject there, Ken? Absolutely. I, I think we need to get Frank together with me and <laughs> help him to navigate the system and help him to to uh, better um, get, get your absentee ballot or your mail-in vote in. And- uh, We'd love to. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll do that. Thank you. I could, um, if I could add a couple of things. So uh, I agree with the idea of, you know, strength testing the system. And this was a special year. So I think election officials across the board did a great job in you know, helping conduct this election in a very uncertain time. So all kudos to them. But at the same time, I think we shouldn't overlook the, the vulnerabilities and the problems with mail voting. I can give you my personal example. Um, I became a US citizen in 2015. So 2016 was the first time I voted. So I always liked the, the in-person voting experience because it's kind of novel. And this year, I tried to vote by mail, and it was uh, it was troubling because in the primaries, uh, my ballot didn't make it, and we kept checking on the website, and then uh, had to go file a provisional, and so I don't know if my ballot got counted, and then for this election, we got the the mail ballot, but to my utter surprise. Um, there was a single envelope. And so I had to sign my name and the signature on the front of the envelope. And typically when, you know, mail voting is done properly, you have a double sleeve. So whoever opens the envelope can't really, you know, see your ballot. In this case, it wasn't. And I'm sure that problem happened in, in multiple jurisdictions because 
states were doing the, the mail voting for the first time in a very hurried way. So I, I just wanna say, while we, we need to salute the election officials, we shouldn't overlook the threats and problems with that system because deep down, it, it's not a resilient system. Like if Florida has a hurricane or had a hurricane last week, there would be no postal system. And if you can't vote in person, how are you gonna vote? Like, what are we gonna do? What would we have done? Would we have postponed the election? And I think um, learning from you know, what happened in Haiti in 2010, when after the earthquake, the mobile network was the first infrastructure which came back online. I think we need to do that kind of uh, resiliency planning, which I feel like is, is really missing from our election infrastructure. Yeah, that's some great feedback. It seems like there's really a need for a multitude of options here, right? You, you should have the electronic voting option, you should have the mail-in voting option, and you should have the physical voting option, right? It should be a combination of everything. That way, in case an unforeseen scenario appears, you have a, a method to work around that. So, all right, guys, in the interest of time, I'm just going to skip ahead to the next question here. I know we already touched a little bit on this, but I want to really drill down into this subject. So, what federal or local level standards need to be introduced for electronic voting using blockchain technology to flourish. And I think we'll start with Jake on this one. Jake, if you could uh, give us some insights on that. So what standards at a federal or local level need to be introduced for electronic voting using blockchain uh, tech to flourish? When you say electronic voting, do you mean like mobile voting? Mobile voting, yes. Um, so, you know, obviously that's a, a pretty controversial um, topic. Uh, you know, I, I think if, I mean, there's certain aspects of mobile voting that happen already, right? So overseas military and others, you know, they vote on um, over email, which is totally insecure and, um, and doesn't protect the secrecy of the ballot at all. Um, and I know we at DEF CON actually were able to, to hack the, the email system um, or a mock-up of the email system um, that our military votes on in like 15 minutes. It was so ridiculous. Um, and so, you know, for, for, for those folks um, who are already voting, you know, in these incredibly insecure ways, um, you know, th there should be a better option. I think, you know, what Nimitz doing is, is very admirable and, and, uh, and interesting. And obviously there's other groups out there, um, you know, trying to, to, you know, build the best mousetrap, I guess, as they would say, uh, better, faster, cheaper, or whatever. Um, and I guess the, one of the key things that I think would need to happen is that there is a, there would at least be a paper printout um, of the ballot that the voter could verify one way or the other. Now that's still not 100% secure, um, there's still ways to hack that even, but at least there would be the, the paper backup. So I, you know, I would, um, if, if I was king for a day and could write the bill, I would probably, I would say that there, if we're going to do this, there should be a paper backup. Um, uh, again, I think that the system that it's built on should be open source. So the good guys can look at the technology and, and not just the, the, the vendors and the bad guys, who, which is the only people who can look at it now. Um, obviously, we'd want to um, have the risk limiting audits, um, you know, in place uh, to be able to go back and audit the paper that comes out of the, 
um, mobile voting. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's where I'd start. Um, but, but others on this call, Nimit in particular, I think would probably um, have some uh, other thoughts beyond that. Yeah, that's a good segue. Nimit, if you want to weigh in on any standards that need to be proposed. Absolutely. So if we look at our in-person voting infrastructure, there is a set of uh, standards which are known as the VVSG, Voluntary Voter System Guidelines. Um, those have been around for a few years and you know parts of it are somewhat outdated. So as, at least as a first step, that could be a, a baseline for things which are relevant, not everything which applies to in-person voting applies to remote voting, obviously. So um, there has been some work which has been done by the, the federal testing labs this year. And we were fortunate to be a part of that. In addition, we need to look at what's, what's evolved in terms of technology. So we have the OVASP standards, which, um, which is sort of an open set of standards for all um, you know, web-based technologies um, from a security perspective they have a mobile top 10 now so I think looking at that and then um, looking at some studies which um, FWAP did the Department of Defense did a few years ago I think those had some good good learnings as well so we have out there you know bits and pieces which if we're, we were to combine those we could come up with a you know, base set of standards, which cover, you know, usability, accessibility, security, as well as the, the voting rules, which, um, which need to match, you know, the in-person voting experience. And I think we, we, we could start there. And then obviously security is, is top of mind. And on the security front, I think having a collaborative approach like Jake was alluding to where, you know, People collaborate from industry, academia, you know, bug bounty programs, and also I'd say, you know, collaboration between different different industries and having kind of standardization on the data formats, how we communicate with the voter registration system, how we communicate with, with the voters, you know, if there are receipts involved, printing of paper ballots, etc. So I would I would do that as a, as a baseline because all that materials already available, we put it together, do kind of a version 1.0 draft. And then as we get feedback from the community, I'm sure people will provide some great feedback there. It can evolve into a more you know, advanced formal standard. Right, it's collaboration, review and reform. It's something that you know, the people in this panel here are definitely contributing to and it's something our ATARC working group is, is discussing as well. So Bill, it looks like you had a little bit to add here. Yeah, yeah, and agree largely with uh, what my two prior panelists said, but I, I will, um, I'll issue a, a challenge that, uh, or, or how I found success working through federal policy, and uh, a lot of times it's hard because the, the conversation is, is occurring at multiple levels, where some of these things are really 10-year objectives, and we need to get right with all the details, but that's not where a lot of our members of Congress and our policymakers are. So if, if nothing else, I'd, I'd just like to suggest for the folks in the industry is you have to 
you have to reverse the conversation. Uh, engineers want to talk about the engineering first, but you, you probably only have, honestly, two or three members of Congress that'll understand anything what you're saying. Um, but so what I found to be successful is you have to start with the problem you're trying to solve. I think um, we all understand election security and that's where the foreign interference came. Um, so you, you literally have to connect it to something they care about. You don't lead with blockchain, you lead with the problem and suggest that there might be a blockchain layer to it. Uh, that's how, honestly, that's how the bills got passed was we just did that with enough members to force it over the finish line. So that's my one piece of practical advice um, there. But uh, my other piece of advice is just to think in different time frames. You know, I think Nimit and Jake were alluding to some of the, the nitty gritty that I would maybe put in a 10 year window bucket. You know, I, I think federal policy is painfully slow and I'm, I'm more frustrated than anybody, but just somebody that, that navigates it you got to crawl before you can walk. And um, so this is going to happen in an incremental process. I'd love, you know, a system where you can take your phone and vote tomorrow. Um, but we have to get trust and confidence. So even deploying blockchain um, through these incremental steps, you know, we, we've seen in the past couple of days that, you know, all of a sudden, uh, 100,000 votes that weren't accounted for suddenly a move like you, blockchain does supply chain really well, even if we're just tracking uh, mail ballots. Um, and also to, to speak of one of Jake's point, um, we are working on a federal funding initiative and we're, we're working on a bill. So I'm happy to listen to that. Um, and I'll point to the success of something that West Virginia did. Um, as Jake mentioned, the, the foreign deployed service members uh, have a tough time voting. It's usually been done over email. Uh, West Virginia implemented a new system where they moved it to the blockchain and they had four over 400 people that successfully voted without in, instant uh, incident. So if we just get down to the specific problems we're trying to solve, is it the security, is it the trackability? Like I think there's a blockchain layer to each of it. And I, I think where we all can collaborate is because um, our bill idea is just to federalize that program, do the same thing for all uh, federal service members as just a way bipartisan, I think you can get buy-in from both sides and then build that out to something more, you know, like a phone-based blockchain system. You know, I, I think that's the end goal and we sort of have to reverse engineer the, the baby steps to get there. But um, something that Namit uh, mentioned really jumped out that I think a panel, some sort of uh, public-private academia collaboration, working group with, with feedback and, and all the sort, I, I think policymakers need to hear that and it's just connecting the dots so just minimum standards I think we're going to need a federal uh, it's called a federal floor I think localities are going to have some flexibility but you're going to have to set some federal minimum standards that if you're using a blockchain based identification what are the five components that fit um, the minimum standards to, for a valid identity like that's a good starting point. And then you give the states the flexibility to, to enact more strict standards. But really the, the federal action here is to create some sort of minimum requirements. And then as we get more and more specific for that phone-based voting system, that's when we need the, the blue ribbon panel to, uh, to really bring this in for a landing and, and get the details right. 
Excellent. And I'm going to end that question on that commentary. That's, that's really useful. Uh, so what I'm going to do here in the interest of time is I'm going to combine the next two questions. Um, and we'll start with CJ on this. So number one, why is there a need for blockchain in order to ensure election security? Number two, how do we implement a manage and manage the solution? Um, great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, you know, in my book, The Social Currency, um, I, I mentioned that, you know, economists have traditionally been arguing over, you know, who controls the means of production, right? But I feel as though we have a, as a community have missed it in terms of, you know, we being proactively involved with the government to control the means of exchange. And something, a thought that I've been kind of like, I planted a seed, you know, um, there's a base assumption that government is a de facto organization that should control the voting process. And I'd like to challenge that. I haven't actually thought it through, but if we're arriving at a stage where the community can collaborate with the government in managing the means of exchange currency, why not the token for voting? Now, in terms of um, you know, why we need a blockchain, now blockchain provides providence. And it does it in a very, very good way. Proof of record, proof of process, proof of signature, right? But as a result, it also comes with a fantastic supporting infrastructure along every single plane that you can imagine. It spawned a, a set of new protocols like, you know, um, um, did auth, um, you know, did attestations, these decentralized identities. So the idea of being able to have a, a, an identity when you're not using the traditional challenge response, adding, entering a username and password has been made available by blockchain. You also, of course, have the decentralized ledger where it makes it more difficult for a hacker to cause mischief. We talk about denial of service attacks or secret injection. You have to do it over X number of distributed nodes, not just one, right? You also have a new framework for actually creating the voting token, like Microsoft's um, token taxonomy initiative. It's beautiful. Um, it, it could be a replacement for the ERC-20 for um, currency tokens, but it's also a replacement for asset tokens and voting tokens. So we have this really, really rich infrastructure available now to create really, really, a really, really innovative you know, platform. Um, yeah, so those, those are my thoughts. That's excellent. And uh, Jake, could I have a response from you in regards to this question? So why is blockchain needed uh, to ensure election security and how will we implement and manage the solution? Um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, like one piece of a solution. Um, you know, I, I don't think that it's um, a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, with uh, the voter register databases being, you know, in, in my view, you know, one of the, the highest value targets in the election infrastructure, it would seem that blockchain makes a lot of sense as a way to, um, to secure those. Um, but, it, but again, there's, there's other um, things that can be done uh, as well. I mean, I think one of the more disconcerting things in my mind is, is just, you know, if you've got 8,000 election jurisdictions around the country, um, I mean, many of them have their voter registration data uh, managed at the state level, but even so, at the end of the day, they still wind up, the local counties and so on, wind up having to take, you know, their parts of the data um, relevant for them and put it in their poll books or do whatever they're going to do with it, um, print out poll books and so on. And so, uh, it's, you know, as you can imagine, with 8,000 jurisdictions, you know, 98% of them do not have a cybersecurity person on staff who can secure these databases. And so I think the more that we can um, 
you know, get these databases, you know, likely in a cloud somewhere where a company like Amazon or Google or Microsoft or whoever, um, you know, does have the resources to hire the best cybersecurity people in the world um, to secure that data. And, um, uh, and, and then they can use blockchain and a whole series of other technologies um, for, for security. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate putting all the voter edge databases in one cloud because um, that, um, you know, just centralizes it probably too much. But among, if they were to be spread among the, the major cloud providers, um, and then those folks could use the technology necessary to, to secure them, in, including blockchain, I think that would give us the best kind of footing with, with what's available to folks right now. I mean, the whole reason that our, our initiative started this pro bono cyber support for local election officials was specifically because we know that it will never be the case that they have the resources um, or even the personnel in most places, e even if they had the money, they wouldn't be able to find the people to hire um, to do cybersecurity in their offices because nationally there's a 500,000 person shortage of cyber professionals to fill the existing open slots. Globally, it's like 3.5 million. And so, you know, the no offense to the folks in Kalamazoo, but the Kalamazoo city, um, you know, county clerk is, is just never going to have somebody to do this, you know. Exactly. And uh, thank you for the insights there. And Frank, could we um, get a response from you on this topic? Sure. Um, so the two parts, the, the first one and something we didn't talk about, by the way, is I, I do believe what one of the foundation and Bill Tom, I don't know you would translate that as a, as a way for it to pass, but we do need digital IDs is, is I think a, an important foundation for this thing. It exists in, in Estonia. And to me, if you don't have a digital ID, any of these things is very difficult to, to build on. Um, and so to me, that would be something that's needed. After that, for blockchain, um, I think Jake also mentioned before that you know, these subjects are very uh, uh, touchy. Every time I, we talk, uh, again, like we've, with Electis, we, we, we can have this community you guys are talking about. So we have researchers. And, and it's very clear, I would say 80% of the time we talk about blockchain and election and researchers, 80% yeah, of the people say, you, you don't understand the topic. Uh, and even worse, not worse, but, but I know a couple of brilliant um, MIT uh, teachers who say they, they don't even uh, like or think, uh, and they have really, really good arguments, but electronic voting is a good thing. Uh, so to me, I, I don't think you need blockchain from a technical perspective. My, my argument is you need it because elections are about trust. And you could have the most safest, like mathematically backed, beautiful machine um, and I'm going to take an extreme example, but let's say you're organizing an election between Israel and Palestine, and you have that server on one side of the border, uh, people will not trust it. And I think one of the advantages of, of having blockchain is that people who don't trust each other can, can literally, you could have, uh, we did an experiment with self-telling, which is interesting. So, so people themselves can, can, can verify the vote. I agree with Jake also on the, on the paper trail, uh, which by the way is used in India, where there's more than 900 million people who vote. Um, so, so there's like a mix of taking what exists today. Um, and, uh, and the second one, I think the distributed aspect is good too, because if you can have different part of that blockchain that are very different, then it's really hard to have one centralized attack. Uh, the same as it's, it kind of mimics the fact that you have to physically go to, you know, to, to voting polls to, 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 to change everything. If you can somehow build a distributed system where each node is slightly different in terms of encryption, then it makes it super hard like, uh, to, to, to hack. 
Um, about the how, I do believe in, in the bottom-up. I do believe grassroots is the right way. I, I do believe we need thousands and thousands of experiments where it's safe to fail, both safe politically and safe technically. Uh, university is what we believe is a good place to start, maybe county, maybe you know, type of elections. And so, so, so that would be my um, quick answer to, to your question. Definitely some great insights. And if the technology is there to help uh, decentralize the data, why not use it? And Bill, do you want to drive us home on this topic here? Yeah, sure. And uh, I agree with a lot of that. And, and I think it, it's important for uh, when you're engaging with policy members is, is to say that blockchain is a possible solution. You know, you can't say that it's the only solution or it's, it's one of many. Um, I think sometimes you have to connect the dots that these are the things that can do and just the way it works, it's, you know, cybersecurity and how to get siloed information to, to talk to each other well. It, you really got to emphasize the, um, uh, the, the benefits and what it can fix and that it's an option among many. Um, and I, I will say that you have to do the other thing and, and some, I won't say anyone on this panel, but I hear some blockchain advocates, it's the cure-all, it's going to solve everything. And, you know, some, some policymakers roll their eyes because they've, they've heard these things that, that don't work in the past. So you have to go in and, and that's what I tell people that the things blockchain can do and the way it works, it can help with very specific things and it needs to be considered in that uh, arsenal of tools. But you have to also uh, acknowledge the things that might not do. Um, and that's why it's a salute or a tool and not the be all end all for every aspect of this complicated issue. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, I could add a yeah, couple go ahead. of things that I agree with what was shared. I think it's um, really important for everybody to understand that, uh, as was said earlier, it's not a magic pill, the use of the blockchain. I think blockchain serves a specific purpose. And like Frank mentioned, Theoretically, you could build the same functionality with, with a different kind of system. One system we've experimented with is you know, GitHub, which is basically a similar to a hash chain. And so theoretically, um, you could use Git to build uh, a system which matches what the blockchain does. Whether you can scale it or not is a different challenge. That's where we ran into a bottleneck early on and, and decided, and I'd like to share a story which I think matches what, what Bill was trying to say. I remember my first pitch to an influential politician about using blockchain for elections. I was trying to explain to him what Bitcoin does and how Bitcoin nodes are spread around the world. And the moment I mentioned a couple of countries which host the Bitcoin nodes, he literally fell off his chair. He says, that's never gonna work. So you're telling me you're gonna run elections on on nodes which are run in unfriendly parts of the world. How do you expect me to sell that to the population? And it, it really hit home hard. And we were, we were glad we heard that very early on. And so that was a reason why we picked uh, a permissioned blockchain infrastructure rather than going with Bitcoin or Ethereum because technology wise is a different, different uh, aspect, but whether you can sell it to the people, to the political decision makers is actually a much bigger problem. And so I agree with what Bill was trying to say completely. Yeah, I think it's pretty understandable that there's a huge educational hurdle at the start here when communicating uh, with local politicians and whatnot uh, from an engineering standpoint. So with the time left here, I'd like to dive into the audience questions. Uh, and this, Tom, I would like you to address this question here from Heidi Binach. 
And her question is, we have automated in every other industry with technology, automation, et cetera. Why do you think we have not a more automated, streamlined technological election process as well, where your vote can be tracked no matter what, whether mail-in or in person? So why do you think it hasn't advanced as much as other industries? Well, I think, I think because you see, you see that, uh, that machines and that type of thing, they're, they're not infallible. And I, I think, uh, like was said here earlier, um, a machine with uh, paper backup is a good, good solution uh, because, you know, then, then you can legitimize the system and, and legitimize the vote. So I think, um, I think that no matter what, I think uh, there needs to be a public-private partnership with with uh, you know public uh, public accountability and, and, and accountability factor, uh, which which the public part would bring in, and then uh, uh, like a consultant that comes in to help with the technical aspects. So I couldn't agree more. And that's half the reason why we started the company block relations is to be that, that intermediary between the two parties. And so I think you hit on a very good point there. Um, if anyone else wants to weigh in, I'll have one more audience question here before we end. So if anyone wants to weigh in on that question, feel free now. And I'll just add that it is a little tricky to, to weigh in on um, election issues because it's the one policy issue that is inherently political. You literally can't separate political outcomes from elections. So I, I think you can make an argument of every other policy issue, but certain things like there were more Democrats that use mail-in uh, voting this election as compared to historically Republicans have tended to use more. So it's important to acknowledge that, that some people are going to be bad actors and, and try to you know, fudge the results and put their finger on the scale one way or the other, just because a solution might skew one way or another. Um, but I think we have to just, you know, fight the good fight and realize that it's a, a trust and procedural issue um, that we need to lock in. And it's not necess necessarily outcome determinative. We don't, we don't, we want to, we want to build the better system that people trust. It's not that we're implementing this to uh, predetermine certain outcomes. Yeah. Well said, well said. And so a question here from Brian Lemonster. Uh, do you think we're at a tipping point where new systems, including blockchain and other emerging tech will be embraced? If not, what do you think will be that tipping point? And this is open for the floor here. I, <clears throat> maybe, maybe a quick point of view on that I've got personally, which is always wonder what would have, you know, George Washington, Madison, Jefferson would have done if they created the United States today. And, and I do believe, you know, the tipping point is not now, which everything that's happening in today's election where, you know, we wish we could have the results right away in the, you know, in the 21st century in a country where we were talking about going to Mars. To me, I, I'm sure we're not alone thinking like why I cannot vote from, from the comfort of my, of my home. So if this is not the tipping point, I do believe what will be is the people. I mean, the people can self-organize and what would happen if 100 million people don't go through the government and use some public blockchain to elect someone, you know, and I don't want to go with secession, but I did, but that's, 
Yeah, one point, if people, if the government wouldn't do it, the people would. Uh, almost like, you know, like Uber uh, would, would, would uh, disrupt things. I, I do believe that at one point people will, they start to do that, right? I mean, you go on Facebook and you can create your own mini political rally. Uh, you don't have to, to go through, through anything official. So uh, I do believe if, if, if now is not the tipping point, like uh, I guess in a very uh, American spirit, uh, the people will, will make it happen. And I'll, I'll, I'm talking a lot, sorry. Um, I just, I deal with the policy at the federal level a lot. And um, I will say that, that I don't think we're at the tipping point yet, but COVID has accelerated the conversation by several years. Um, and kind of our plan and why we focus on the budget is to get these different pilot programs within different agencies that utilize blockchains to do different things. I think the one that's furthest along is the F, the Food and Drug Administration using blockchain to track contaminated food back to its um, local source so that you don't have a romaine lettuce outbreak like occurred a few years ago. And I think our, our idea is whenever this tipping point happens, we wanna have a track record of government success of these public-private partnerships and use cases and, and pilot programs to show that it's not just us trying to fix the election. It's us trying to, uh, you know, I, I think that tipping points in a few years and we just need to build a credible record of blockchain being used in different things so that we have the credibility to say, oh yeah, it also helps with elections as well. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I, as much as I would like to say we are at the tipping point, I, I don't think we are there yet. I think it's um, at best one election cycle away. So perhaps 2024, and I totally agree with Bill. I think we have to get there in baby steps. Uh, we need to do, keep doing pilots, build the proof points. Um, the FDA example is great. And I think we'll have some really good proof points from this year's elections as well. And I do feel like <clears throat> you might find an international jurisdiction take that leap of faith before uh, a major leap of faith happens in the US. And I think that would be, that would be telling as well. Um, and and the, the big reason for that is, um, actually there are two reasons. One Frank pointed out is the lack of a national digital ID infrastructure. The reason um, Estonia is able to do secure online voting in the presence of, you know, one of the biggest nation state threat actors is because they have this, they very early on put this biometric national ID in the hands of every citizen. And I think in the US, that work is being done by the private sector, unfortunately, because it's all at the state level. And if everybody had a passport, for example, we could solve that problem tomorrow, but only a third of the country does. So <clears throat> that's something to keep in mind. And also the, the very decentralized uh, nature of the the election operation here, which is very unique compared to every other other country around uh, around the world, which conducts a democratic process. So there's there's room for optimism, but uh, I don't think we can jump the gun yet to say that the tipping point is here. It's probably close, but not yet. Can I just jump in there, Ken? I I think I think uh, on the world um, in the world arena, I think. Uh, I think there might be a lot of skepticism about starting on the on the world stage, only because 
of um, world politics and and uh, and the distrust of many uh, you know many different nations with other nations and and those people you know people dealing with people and uh, it, it's a debate that we're going through in this country right now you know with with uh, structural racism and that type of thing so I think that could create part of the problem but. absolutely there's so many different complexities we're dealing with especially in a person-to-person -person business like politics right so uh, I just want to end this meeting here today by thanking all of the panelists for joining me and uh, thanking ATARC again. Again, it's ATARC.org for more information. And uh, my company is Block Relations, and you can find more information on us on blockrelations.com. Maybe this is a good time if we just go panelist by panelist, give a closing statement and uh, an address or social handle where people can follow up with you if they need more information. Uh, so Bill, if you'd like to start. Yeah, and I have to correct my introduction. It's, it's Block Relations and not Block One. There's a big difference. So uh, thank you for what you do all. Um, Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Bill Rockwood Jr. I, I respond well to there. And I just joined Twitter, uh, Bill Rockwood, and then the number two. Um, but my concluding thoughts, exciting times. I hope everyone survives the remainder of the election season intact. Um, but blockchain is honestly the, the thing that gets me excited and get out of bed every morning on the policies the front. We were hearing a lot of negative news. Um, but for the technologists and the scientists and the, all the book writers out there, um, thank you for what you do. And, you know, I hope I can be a bridge to the great work you're doing and helping uh, it move in the, at the federal government level. Thank you, Bill. And Tom, if you want to give a closing statement and contact point. Sure. Uh, Tom McDonough. And I can probably be best reached on LinkedIn. Um, and it's under Tom McDonough and, uh, and I'm a neighborhood business manager with the city of Boston's office of small business. And uh, I just want to thank Ken and ATARC for inviting me here and allowing me to be on, on this panel because frankly, I, I don't think I'm among, among the uh, giants that I hear. You know, I, I'm looking up at giants is what I'm doing. And so um, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks. You're welcome, Tom. We, we definitely appreciate you being here as well. And uh, CJ? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, everyone, for the opportunity. Um, really, really enjoyed it. Um, I put my details in the chat window. So it's Seja for Twitter. There's my LinkedIn profile. You will need my email address because I'm very anti-spam. So you can't connect to me if you don't know my email address. And that's my website as well. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. And Frank? Yeah, like, again, like, thanks to Block Relations. Thanks again, like, Kenneth, for, for putting this together with you, Kirsten, and, and the talk. Um, super honored to be here. I'm just very excited to, to work on things. And so my, my take, maybe, and tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I, I like the idea that we, we all agree we need experiments. We all agree we need to have, uh, you know, the, the political side, the research side, and everybody coming to, together. So. Uh, practically on our side, I'd love for anyone who would listen to us, if you can go on electis.io and if you can connect us to any universities, we're, um, we're conducting an experiment for the next six months and we're looking to organize more than 50 elections. Um, we do have some university in New York, we have NYU, we have Stanford, we'd love to have some in Boston, there's a couple of good ones. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 
and so that's it and so again like looking forward to to continue this, this uh, conversation with you guys and with anyone who's involved here today and let's let's do our best and you know um, I, I'm pretty optimistic about what's happening now I do believe it's it's uh, you know uh, I think Tom mentioned that COVID is accelerating everything I feel or, or maybe you build it too like but uh, at the end of the day you know it's a little hurtful but I, I think you know it's 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 all for the for the best and we'll we'll make we'll make a better democracy at the end of the day so super exciting about what's gonna happen next exactly thank you and Jake Um, yeah, so thanks for having me. Um, obviously, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, like everybody else. And um, uh, you can check out the Cyber Policy Initiative at harris.uchicago.edu. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I think what you guys are doing is great. Thank you very much. And Nimit. Uh, thank you, Kenneth and the Block Relations team and also the ATAC team for having us here. It's a, it's a great honor. And I would... Uh, um, like to end by by saying that I, I think this is uh, this is a really timely discussion. Um, there's an element of inevitability to it. I think as far as the future is concerned, and I think we need to stay optimistic. Uh, think about this in a very methodical way. Change does not happen overnight, and I think where there's a will, there's a way. And uh, it only seems impossible till it's done. So I'm excited that um, there's, a, there's an audience of people who are optimistic about this and want to do this in a very methodical way and excited to be part of uh, a small part of this. So thank you again for having us here. Thanks all around. All right, guys. Hold on one second. I want to take yep. a photo. So smile, three, two, one. Thank you, guys. All right, everyone have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Bye.